Hello and welcome to the Praise Center Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, visit PraiseCenterOnline.com. I leaned to Alex while that song uh, was playing, and uh, I told him, I said, that song is wrecking me right now. <laughs> I don't know how to sing it anymore without crying and just grasping hold and saying, God, I need a miracle. So desperate for a miracle. And I believe he's working on it. Now, I'm not preaching this sermon to just have a cute little, uh, you know, my, my series. I'm not preaching this to just have a cute little thing to talk about. And I, I'm, I'm desperately digging in for what God has for us. And I'm going deep and I'm going, going all out for Jesus right now. And I'm saying, Lord, we've got to have what you have for us. And I hope everybody will begin to rise up with me in their faith and just express that faith and let's go after it. That's my absolutely gorgeous granddaughter. So she can cry all she wants. <laughs> oh, praise God. Praise God. A few weeks ago I talked about uh, how sometimes miracles are called signs. And the idea that signs are meant to point us towards something. People, you know, if you see a sign out there and it absolutely doesn't mean anything or it's useless... Like uh, one day I was driving through Puyallup with my son. I think it was, or I was going to your house. I don't remember, but I, yeah, that's right. I was alone in the car. And I drive by uh, down there, down by the fairgrounds. And I see a sign on the side of the road that said, Lost Pig <laughs> Call. <laughs> I'm thinking, that's a weird sign. <laughs> I'm talking about signs that matter. I'm talking about signs that really point towards something important. Well, I guess that was probably important for them. I don't mean to demean pigs here, but I'm quite fond of pigs, actually. <laughs> in a different form. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking back, uh, we're going to look at the first chapter, or excuse me, um, the uh, second chapter of John today, if you get your Bibles out, and let's look at John chapter 2, 1 through 11. But looking back at the first chapter of John, I want to just kind of get you just a bit of a chronology leading up to what we're going to read here in these 11 verses. Uh, Jesus had just been baptized in water, and then led by the Spirit to those 40 days that he spent in the wilderness preparing. And uh, I love what it says. I think it's in Mark. It says, He came out of the desert full of the Spirit, or the power of the Spirit, full of the power of the Spirit, ready to go. He was just, 40 days of fasting didn't slow Jesus down one little bit. And uh, he was ready to go, full of, his, full of the power. He wasn't full of food at that moment, but he was full of God's power. And so, uh, but I want you to see this little progression. And so if you have your Bibles, and you, I know you're at uh, John 2, but just turn back to John 1.29. You'll see that uh, the, there's a, uh, it says the words, the next day. And, and uh, this is the first day of Jesus returning to that area up in the northern part near the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and, uh, he, and what happens in this particular passage in John 1, 29 through 34, John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So I want you to see this progression of these names of God and the, 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 uh, the, the um, what's the word I want? Anyway, uh, Man, I've just done three sermons this weekend, and they're all blending together in my mind. So just hang in there. I'll get there. But just this idea of who, this is who Jesus is. And then look at John 1.35. It says the next day again. And the next day, Jesus begins to assemble a group of disciples, starting with the two disciples 
of John. And then he goes from there. Uh, one of those was named Andrew. Andrew goes and gets his brother uh, Simon, who later becomes Peter. And then Peter uh, and identifies Jesus to uh, Peter as the Messiah. So not only is he uh, the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world, but now he's also the Messiah. And we're getting that the next day. And, and so this is the one that they've been waiting for. This is the one the Jews have been looking for all along. And then the next day, starting in verse 43, he leaves Galilee with these three men. And on the way, he finds a guy named Philip. And Philip, like Andrew, hurries to tell someone else. I love this idea, this idea. As soon as we find out about Jesus, we just go tell somebody about Jesus right away. You know, and if you, if you know Jesus, you've got to tell other people about him. And so Nathaniel is, uh, is a guy that uh, Philip knows. And so uh, Philip goes to him and he says, hey, you've got to come and, and meet the one. And so sure enough, uh, Philip, or Nathaniel meets Jesus. And, uh, and all of a sudden, he identifies him by three titles in that passage from verse 43 to 49. He calls him rabbi or teacher. He calls him the son of God. He calls him the king of Israel, all of these titles. So now to our text, the, this entourage of at least five disciples at this point uh, make their way to a wedding in a town called Cana. And the opening words of chapter 2 tell us on the third day, and we can presume that that meant third day after his interaction with Philip and Nathaniel there, um, but so altogether, more than likely, this is no more than six days into the ministry of Jesus. You're tracking with me, right? So about six days have passed. He came out of the desert, um, and all these things have transpired. He's called a few of the disciples, not all of them together. And, and, and to this point, he's done no miracles at all. And those who are following him are following him because they believe he is the Messiah. They believe he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They believe he's the Son of God. He's the teacher, the rabbi, and he's the king of Israel. They're believing that stuff, but it hasn't been on the basis of miracles yet. And so they don't even have any perception yet that that's what's going to happen, that there's no reason that they would think this. But then we see in John chapter 2, verse 1, and let's pick it up in the text here now from the NIV. I read, uh, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana at Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, don't miss this setup as we get into this, because the first thing Jesus does after coming out of the desert in the power of the Spirit, after these titles being uh, rightfully bestowed upon him, and after he gathers the first of his disciples, is come to a wedding. And you think, well, that was just by chance or by invitation. Do you understand that Jesus did nothing except what the Father told him to do? He's there for a reason. There, there are layers and layers of significance happening in this moment when he comes to this wedding, and uh, we can't really grasp all those in, in one message, but let's just look at, at something really profound that takes place. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Many people misunderstand because of the English, the way this sounds. This is not a disrespectful thing on Jesus' part at all. In fact, the word in the original language is a very respectful term. He says, woman, why do you involve me? He replied, he said, my hour has not yet come. Oh man, I love this, I love this. His mother, <laughs> I love this. You know, I, I have to read in between the lines. Completely ignores Jesus <laughs> in this moment, right? And turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Whew. So nearby it says they stood these six stone water jars, the kind used by uh, the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons of water, or, you know, set for water. Jesus said the servants filled the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. 
Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. They knew. And and then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Jesus always does the best, amen? And then what Jesus, what Jesus did here in Cana of, Ga, of Galilee was, here it is, the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. They believed in him. They saw something in him they hadn't seen before. They believed some things about him, but now all of a sudden this is really taking on significance. Let's pray. God, I pray that uh, as we rehearse this story from your word and we go over it, I pray that the significance of this will just begin to, to uh, massage itself into our souls and we begin to grasp this. And as we uh, look at this idea of doing whatever you tell us to do, that God, as we sang a moment ago, not only do we believe in miracles, but we expect to see miracles. We expect to do miracles. We expect to experience miracles in our bodies, in our lives, in this church, in our our valley, Lord, and beyond, we expect great things, because you said we would, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Have you ever run out of gas before? How many people have ever run out of gas? Oh, isn't that the worst thing ever? I, uh, I, unfortunately, I've done it a couple of times in my life, and when I was in Bible college, I was actually very meager in terms of finances at the time, and I decided to buy a motorcycle. There were two reasons I wanted to buy a motorcycle. Well, three. I thought it'd be fun, <laughs> uh, but that aside, uh, the primary reason was I thought I would save money on gas, so that made sense, because uh, I didn't have much, and my other, my other vehicle was a uh, 64 Ford T-Bird. Man, that was a sweet ride. Oh, love that car. I wish I had it now. But anyway, that aside, I, uh, I get this motorcycle, gets better gas mileage. But the other reason, how many have been to Southern California before and sat in the, what they call freeways, but they're actually parking lots? You know what I'm talking about. So I, uh, when I started driving in L.A., I had never experienced anything like this before, but I'm sitting completely still, you know, in traffic, supposedly, and we're not really moving or we're moving very slowly, and all of a sudden, zoom, zoom, and, and motorcycles are driving between. And I'm thinking, I, I was trained in Oregon. You can't do that in Oregon. You can't, I don't think you can do that anywhere but California, as far as I know. But, but I, my eyes just lit up. I was like... I was on fire. That was, that was the best thing I ever saw in my life. And suddenly I got a revelation because there wasn't anything I hated worse than sitting in traffic for, you know, forever, listening to that three, nine, 390 cubic inch V8 engine just sucking gas. Like, <laughs> you know, so, so uh, all of a sudden I got this revelation. I need a motorcycle. So I get a motorcycle, and, um, and I, I didn't know much about them, but I knew a little bit. And so began to drive it, and, uh, and uh, it, I think all motorcycles have this, I imagine they still do, but it, I had this little valve on the side, and when you close that valve, what it did is it reserved some of the gas in the tank, and uh, so it would begin to take the gas at another level, and then when you ran out of gas, you could just reach down, pull that little valve down straight, and more gas would be there for a short distance where you could get to a gas station. So, um, so I'm driving along one day, and I run, out, I run out of gas, I flip my little switch down, I go to the gas station, I fill up, and then I drive off and I go about my business. Well, sometime later, I'm driving in the, in, down in the, the Sherman Oaks area of the valley where, you know, going to Bible school still, and I'm just driving along, and I'm, I'm kind of going up a little bit of, it wasn't a huge hill, but it was a little bit of an incline, and all of a sudden, bleh, 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 and I reached down, and in that moment, I had a revelation. 
Revelation has said, you know, you should really pay attention to the direction of that valve when you fill up with gas because what I had done is left that open and now I had zero gas, zero gas. And it's, like I say, this is an incline. Well, I was aware of the area a little bit. I knew there was a gas and it was going to go up for a while and it was going to go down. So I literally had to push my motorcycle for about a mile uphill, right? <laughs> this is when motorcycle became no fun. And uh, I pushed it about a mile up the hill, and then I was able to coast it down the other side into a little service station, got some gas, and remembered to flip. And I wish I could tell you that was the only time I ever did that, but it was not. Running out is terrible, right? I know a guy once, Ronnie can affirm this story, I'm sure. He had a fear of running out of toilet paper. No kidding. Do you remember this guy? We go to his house one day. And he was get, looking for something else. I don't know what he was looking for, but like, it was a closet of some sort in the hallway. And he opens his closet, and I tell you the truth, I think from top to bottom of that closet was toilet paper rolls. And we were just stunned. We were looking at him like, what the heck, man? And, uh, and he, he, he admitted, he says, I, I have this terrible fear of running out of toilet paper. So he says, come here. And he takes us down the hallway a little bit, and he, and he opens a pantry. And there is some food in the pantry, but there's also about half the pantry is full of toilet paper. Then he takes us down, on, this is the truth, he go down the hallway and there's a door uh, that goes to his garage, he opens the door to his garage and there's a shelving unit out there loaded with, that's amazing, isn't it, yeah, and he was a pastor, so, you know, pastors have problems too. But running out is a bummer, uh, running out of anything, and uh, so Jesus attends this wedding. And when it says his mother was there, we infer from the story that we don't know for sure, but we infer that she was helping, that she was somehow maybe related to the couple that was getting married or somebody that was involved in some way. But just the fact that she's taking responsibility, we get that out of the story. And, uh, and so Mary, again, feels some sort of responsibility regarding the lack of wine, or maybe at, at the very least she feels sorry for this couple because in those days this was a terrible social faux pas. To, to be running out of, of wine at a wedding was, it, it, it actually, and this may sound crazy to us, but it was punishable by a fine in the community. You could actually be levied a fine against you for running out of wine, not to mention you would be ostracized by the community because that just, you just didn't do that. And this is, so this was a, this is like one of the worst, most embarrassing, humiliating things that could happen. And that stigma would have stayed with this couple. See, this is what I'm talking about. There's so many layers of what's going on in this moment. And, and we don't have time to explore them all, but think about how this couple for the rest of their lives would have had that stigma hanging over their head. Oh, you're that couple. You didn't have enough. You didn't think it through. You weren't prepared. How many different ways could you go with that? And this whole family would have likely become the laughingstock in, there in Cana. John records this as the first miracle that Jesus does, but he, he, I love that he uses this word sign again, because uh, again, as I told you a few weeks ago, there are four words that can be used to denote a miracle, but John uses this one because he wants us to see that this is not just some random miracle, but, but that this one pointed to a big picture of the kingdom of God, that there's something bigger going on here. And so I want to talk maybe about two quick points about what do we find out from Je about Jesus from this sign. And first of all, first point is this, Jesus cares. And I want to add to that, we need to care. We need to care. Let's, let's be caring people, right? So, so, first of all, he cares about weddings. I, I would just want to say to you, I think it's a good idea to invite Jesus to your wedding. Right? Good, good idea. You know, I... Uh, People can get married down at the courthouse, that's fine, but I think it's a great idea that, that we involve the church in weddings. It's not mandated in Scripture, 
Uh, really, it's not. There's no, no, nothing in the Bible tells me how to do a wedding, but I love that in our culture that there is some expectation that there's a pastor involved and that a church gathers and that it's in the family of God that a wedding gets done because that, to me, it's like is there something just great about that, that we're having Jesus at our wedding. We're inviting his presence. We're doing it in the company of godly witnesses that care about us and care about those weddings. And so, so, you know, but, but I think it's amazing that Jesus would start with this miracle of all things. I'm almost offended by it, to be honest with you. Because I think, you know, Jesus, come on now. If you're going to do a starting miracle, if you're going to do a real good sign that really points to the kingdom, why not just like start out with raising the dead? That's a, that was a good one there. That Lazarus thing, that was the best. I like that a lot. Oh, I like those guys that had never walked their whole lives and were laying by a pool and you just pick them up. And they, I like the guy that was on the mat. And man, there's so many good stories, Lord. And I'm thinking, why, why this one? Why this one? And, and I think, I think uh, if we think that this is just some random thing that happened here uh, and that Jesus was somehow manipulated, it sounds like, oh, his mom really talked to him, and my mom pulled one over on him, didn't she? If you think that that's it, you have misunderstood the text here, I'm telling you. Jesus is at this wedding on purpose, and he, again, he only does what the Father says he's to do. And the Father's plan and purpose was that his son would attend that wedding, and that the first sign that he would do would be to turn water to wine. The very first thing. And, 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 but I don't think it's about the wine. I, I think people like to focus on that. Oh, see, we can have wine to drink. I don't. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I've told you my story. But the thing is, I think people get, you know, get, get all excited about wine. There's probably a problem there if, that, if you're getting excited about the wine. I think the excitement of this story is the wedding. And that he didn't want to see people carry a stigma for the rest of their life. Uh, this isn't accidental. He wasn't conned into anything. He's doing something on purpose because he cares. And that w- a wedding has the potential to be one of the most beautiful and meaningful things that a couple of people can do. And, and I believe that he's doing this sign first at a wedding because that's what creation is all about. The groom, if you will, creating mankind, that we become the bride of Christ. Do you understand that, that uh, God starts in the garden with a wedding, a man and a woman in the garden, but when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, he says, and the spirit and the bride say, come, because the bride, wa-. do you understand the Bible begins with a wedding and the Bible ends with a wedding, and the first sign in the Bible is a wedding. There's so much here. So that this, again, there's this wedding between God and man. That's, that is what God's been after, that, that he would have a people and that we would have a God. That we would be wed with him forever as the bride of Christ connected to God in unfathomable fathomable ways. As I say, a wedding has the potential to be one of the most beautiful things, but weddings can also be strange. I did a wedding once. It was the weirdest thing I ever did in my life, I'm telling you. I met with this couple like I always do. I do premarital counseling. And uh, I, 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 I got this sense through the couple. I never talked with the parents really much. But the couple, because they didn't go to our church. They were out, outside our church. But the couple came in to me, and they kept saying things about their parents, and especially her parents, not really being all completely on board with this wedding. And so I, I like, well, I, I didn't think much of it. I figured they'd work their own stuff out, whatever was going on there. So it comes time for the wedding, 
And I'm sitting back in my office getting prepared and just going over my notes, and, and they're doing all the activity out here. And suddenly there's a knock on my door of my office, and the, the dad of the bride comes in, and he says, um, hey, I just want to tell you something. Uh, I, I, this is 25 minutes before the wedding. He says, I've decided I'm not going to uh, walk my daughter down the aisle. And I just, I, I didn't know what to say. I was literally stunned. I had nothing to say. And finally I said, well, uh, have you told her? He goes, No. And I said, well, don't you think that'd be a good idea that you go, you know, because she's kind of expecting that when the time hits, you're going to walk her down the aisle. And so he said, he said, I said, you know, you need to go tell her. And so I said, okay, I will. So he turned around and he walked out. And I'm just grieving and I'm just praying back. And I'm thinking, this is, this is nuts. And sure enough, the poor girl, she comes down the aisle by herself. And I'm just thinking, what, what a dysfunctional family. What a mess that, that you can't make, you can't work stuff out with your people until that moment, and you're going to manipulate and use, and I just, oh, I was so angry. So we go through the wedding, and it, it turned out beautiful. That They were deeply in love, and I thought when we did counseling, they were, I thought they were fine, so, you know, it's not my decision anyway, but I just felt like they'd be great. So the wedding gets over. I'm standing back there by the sound booth. I'm taking off my wireless mic, and here comes the grandmother. She comes up to me and just, just looked like, man, she had been baptized in pickle juice. I mean, she was just... <laughs> She was upset. She, she glared me down and stared up at me and said, why didn't you ask that question if anybody here objects to this wedding that they should speak? Why didn't you ask that question? She's literally almost yelling at me back there. And I'm like, you know, I was literally scared of her. And I said, well, here's the deal. I said, that, that pretty much, I think that only ever happens on TV. Because when we come to a church and we do something in the sight of God, I'm figuring that all you people have figured out your stuff before now. Right? And I was just blown away by the, the, the horrible way that adults were acting at a wedding. And, and, but, you know, and so sometimes in the body of Christ there's dysfunction. How many have seen people in church you think, man, they're not acting like Jesus, right? If you're not raising your hand, you're lying right now. Come on. I've seen more than my share, let me tell you. So, so what I'm saying is, is that that we need, to, we need to understand, apart from horror stories like that, though, that weddings are generally just this incredible event. And, uh, and I want us to think deeply about these spiritual ramifications of a wedding. We're called the bride of Christ. I mentioned that already. And, and you know, what makes it... <laughs> I heard this thing this week. Um, I should, I've gone on these tangents today. I'm sorry. I've, I've preached twice, and I'm a little bit punchy, so forgive me if I keep going off. But I don't remember her name. Kristen Bell, that's her name. Did you guys hear this thing in the news? She was upset, and she was telling her daughters that, that uh, Prince Charming kissing Snow White while she was sleeping was, was a wrong thing for him to do, that he should have got permission before he kissed her on the lips. I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just saying, we have lost our minds. <laughs> we have literally lost our minds here, okay? And, uh, but, but do you understand, this is where those fairy tales come from. That, that's why they move our hearts, you know. And I know you guys are saying, oh, they don't move my heart. Yes, they do. Shut up. <laughs> they move our hearts because we love the concept of Prince Charming coming and kissing his bride and bringing her really from death. That, there is such a spiritual significance in that. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I think I like Kristen, Kristen Bell, but man, she's just like, slow down, girl. You're just getting a little too crazy. It's a cartoon. Come on. So, so, so anyway, but here's the thing. He will, he will come for us. 
Our, our, someday our prince will come, do you understand? And he's going to come on a white horse. You catching the connection here? He's going to come on a white horse and he's going to sweep us up in his arms and he's going to take us home. It's amazing. He's going to take us to his castle to live forever. It's right there. And, and you men, quit looking at me like that. Come on now. <laughs> All the ladies, oh. And the guys are like, I don't know if I should be going amen right now. Anyway, listen. Listen, he cares about his people as that prince and that, bri- and that groom would care for his bride. He, he cares even as a new husband cares for his, and for his own bride and watches over her. And even though Jesus said it was not his hour, he cared enough to provide what this family needed, and to, even if this just saved them from embarrassment. God cares about our reputation. He cares about things in life that concern us. He really does. He cares about our requests. He listened to his mother, even though it was clear it, that... that uh, it, it was clear that he was to be about his father's business. But if we want to see miracles happen in our life, chances are we need to really check our pulse when it comes to caring. Do we care enough about people to want to see miracles happen in their life? To listen to what God is, to do what Jesus is saying so that we're going to... It's going to start with a caring attitude. That I care enough about you or I care enough about that person that's hurting out there to say, come on, come on, I'm going to check my pulse. I care too. Jesus cares about your requests. And here's my second... And final point, that faith is essential. We need faith. Faith is essential. And I know I'm being a bit redundant because the first two sermons I did on miracles were heavy into talking about how desperately we need faith. But we cannot overemphasize the importance of and the place of faith. First, we see Mary's faith in this story. I love how she says it. She just, again, she turns away from Jesus, turns to the servant, says, do whatever he tells you. She doesn't, even, she doesn't even interact with her son at that moment. It's like, just do what he tells you. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking at first, like it sounds to me, like Jesus is saying, it's not time for me to be doing this. And yet, by the faith of Mary, he just does it. No questions asked. And it, it, it's... It rem- it's reminiscent to me in her faith to think about when the angel of the Lord came to her uh, when she was much younger by the well and, and, and said, you know, the Spirit of God is going to overshadow you and the Son born to you will be the Son of the Most High. And, 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 and what is the words out of her mouth? She said, may it be to me as you've said. Can we just get like Mary and just have that attitude when God talks and when he talks to us out of his word? May it be to me as you have said. And, or I'll do whatever you tell me, Lord, but, you know, just I'm ready to go. Do whatever he tells you. And, and listen, let me explain something here. We should never, ever think of God as reluctant to help us. You see? People read into this story, oh, Jesus is reluctant. That's why he's saying that's not my time yet. No, no, no. There's a bigger story going on here. I can, I can prove it to you. It, he says, it's, he says uh, Jesus tells a parable at another time. He tells about a man, you remember this, who uh, a visitor comes to him late at night, and he has nothing to set before the visitor, another huge social faux pas. You don't ever have guests come to your house and not have some food or so, at least some bread to set before them. So what does the guy do? In the middle of the night, he goes to his neighbor's house and begins to bang on the door of the neighbor. He says, hey, give me some bread. Give me some bread. I've had somebody come from a long ways away and I need some bread. The guy calls down. He says, hey, I'm in bed. My wife's in bed. My kids are in bed. Leave me alone. Get out of here. I'm not giving you any bread. Oh, please, I need some bread. I've got to have some bread. This is a bad deal. I need bread. I know you got bread. I'm going to just stay right here until you give me some bread. And he keeps knocking, and he keeps going after it. And, he keeps, and it says eventually the guy gets worn out. He says, okay, because he wouldn't give up. He comes downstairs, he gives the guy some bread. This is found in Luke 8, uh, 11, 8. 
Because the guy won't stop knocking. The neighbor finally gets up. And, and, and this is what Jesus says about it. He says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of the friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity. Come on. Some shameless audacity there. He will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Get out of here. Take all my bread. I'm going to sleep. Your shameless audacity got me up out of bed, and I'm here to do something for you. And so, so he, he, says, he, he, he says, man, a shameless audacity, get up and give you as much as you need. And then Jesus follows that by saying this, which is very familiar to us. He says, so I say to you, right, in context, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. You've heard me say before, you've probably heard a lot of preachers say, these words in Greek are different than any English. They have a continual action to them. So it really could be translated, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Right? Why? Be, is, is God sleepy? The Bible says God doesn't sleep. Is He hard of hearing? God hears the faintest cry of His people. Is God in a position where he's too busy or doesn't want to be bothered? Never, never, never. It's, it's not about God. His not, he, listen, the, the neighbor who's reluctant to get up is not really God. This is all a picture of prayer and faith, right? Understand, God isn't waiting till we wear him out because he's just lazy and doesn't want to get off his rear and come help us. He's waiting because we need shameless audacity. We need to get some shameless audacity where we just go, I'm into this. I'm going. I'm God. I'm not letting go. I believe in you. You're the God of miracles. I need a miracle, God. I need you to show up. We need a little shameless audacity with God. And he continues in that verse. He says, for everyone who asks and keeps on asking receives. The one who seeks and keeps on seeking finds. The one who knocks and keeps on knocking, the door will be open. These are guarantees. Don't give up on your request. Don't give up on your prayer. Don't give up on your miracle. It's not time until you see it. We need a little shameless audacity with God today in Jesus' name. We need to be audacious, tenacious, bodacious, and outrageous in our faith. Come on. I'm doing pretty good for a guy who's preached three times. So We need to exercise faith at a level that says, I won't give up. I won't give up. So I don't believe for a minute that Jesus is reluctant to help his mother, but he's helping her to do what he's talking about here, to exercise her own faith. I'm not going to take no for an answer, Jesus. There wasn't rebellion. There wasn't like a, a problem between them at all. He isn't being rude to his mom. He's just trying to draw out of her the faith that he knows that she already has. That's what he's doing here, I guarantee you. And so... So the best advice I can give anyone in this room today and always is do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Imagine you're one of those servants now, right? And so, so he tells him, okay, go over and fill those stone jars, 20, 30 gallons of water. That's quite a task. And you know every time you dip the water out of the well or wherever you're getting the water from and you bring it in, you pour it in and you look at it, it's just water. And he says, and after you do that, then dip some of it out and take it to the host of the party. And you dip it out and you look and it's still water. Right? So you understand that these servants are also exercising faith. They did what Jesus told them to do. 
You see, it wasn't just Mary saying, hey, just go do it. Now you've got these servants exercising their faith, and they're thinking, oh boy, we're just doing what he told us to do. This doesn't make sense. And I don't know exactly at what point the miracle took place. Maybe when they dipped it out and finally poured it into the cup of the master. Right? Maybe not. You know, maybe he didn't even see them pouring it in because they were afraid he would, and they poured it in, it was still water, and he starts to pick it up, and they think, oh, we're going to get beat within an inch of our lives for this. And he lifts it up, and he goes, oh, that is the best wine I've ever tasted. That was the best. I don't know where the miracle took place, but I want to give some of these servants some credit for having faith to just walk that thing out, even though, you know, when they poured it in the thing, it was water. I don't know where the miracle took place from there, but at some point, they just had faith to take water, and they're walking along. I don't know if they actually saw it happen before their eyes. I don't know if they had, I don't know, but they had faith. I don't know about you, but that's audacious, tenacious, outrageous faith. So, so we, we have the faith of Mary, we have these servants. And that's what God is asking us to do. He's asking us, you say, well, what's he telling me to do? Well, some of it's in the book. And if you're not doing the stuff that's already in the book, that's the best starting place. But I want to tell you, too, that if you'll listen, and I said this to the men and the youth this weekend, it says seven times in the book of uh, Revelation, God's perfect number, that he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Uh, by the way, when we leave this building, do you know that the Spirit of God is not talking to an empty building? So therefore, this is not the church. Point to yourself, you're the church. You're the church. That means that the Spirit saying over and over again things to His church. He's talking to His church. Seven times it says, let Him hear what the Spirit is saying. Let Him hear, let Him hear, let Him hear, let Him hear, let Him hear what the Spirit is saying. So the Spirit is constantly talking. Say, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You just need to keep listening. Because He is talking. And we've got to get tuned in, we've got to get fine-tuned in to where we hear what the Spirit is saying. Amen? Are you ready to do some of that? Let's uh, have the worship team come back up. Faith has to be paired with action. Did you hear what I just said? No, some of you didn't hear it, I know. Faith has to be paired with action. It absolutely does. From what I see in Scripture, miracles will never take place without faith. And faith is always accompanied by some kind of action. Doesn't James say that? Faith without works is what? dead. It's useless. It's no good. Moses, throw down your staff. He throws it down. It becomes a snake. Moses, raise up your staff. and He puts it over the sea and the waters part. There's action. It, you know, I'll part the waters when the priests actually walk down and get their feet in the edge of the river and the Jordan River will part and then you'll go in the promised land. But they had to touch the water first. Hey, you guys, we're just going to march around the city for seven days and on the seventh day, we're going to march around it seven times. There's a lot of action going on there. How hard is that every day, every day, thinking, oh my goodness, what are we doing here? Naaman, go down and wash yourself in the Jordan River. There's better rivers back home. I'm not, no, the servant said, just go down to the river and wash yourself seven times. So he goes and thinks, oh, this is crazy. And on the seventh time, leprosy was gone from his body. Peter, you want to pay our taxes? Go, go down there to the lake, throw your line in, catch a fish, open its mouth, look inside. You'll find enough to pay your taxes and mine. I like fishing okay, but that kind of fishing would be awesome. Get up. Take your mat. Go home. Really? Yeah, just do it. Action. If we want to see the power of God displayed in our lives, we have to listen for God's voice. We have to display a faith that's followed by action. Do what He says. I'm going to finish today with a story. And then we're going to sing that song about miracles again. Are you okay with that? 
Excellent. Stories about a couple named Jim and Julie, uh, and it's, I think uh, the story is probably 25 years old or so, maybe 30 years ago. They were pastoring, they were in their early 20s, they were pastoring in Tucson, Arizona, and they were expecting their first child, and they knew it was a baby girl. In those days, and I remember this, it was true for me and Rhonda, uh, believe it or not, because our first son, uh, we did have insurance, but um, we, we almost had the mind to not have insurance because it was, it was thought possible that if it's a normal delivery, you could actually save up enough money, pay the bill off. I don't think that's really true anymore, right? It's just the medical costs have gotten so astronomical. But a lot of people 30, 40 years ago just thought, well, we'll, just, we'll pay it as much as we can, we'll have the baby, we'll finish the bill later, but we, we're not going to, you didn't necessarily have insurance. I'm just, just being real. And I'm not saying that's a good idea, believe me. But the, so they didn't have insurance. And so Jerry, Jerry and his wife, they're pastors, and money was tight, so they decided not to have insurance. And, uh, and, it, and he thought, you know, I'm just going to take responsibility. He started working extra jobs. He started saving money, and he actually saved up a lot of money. And as time went on, he got to the place where he decided uh, he could um, uh, uh, pretty much pay off what he expected the bill to be. And he was proud of himself for getting that far. Well, after a couple months passed, I don't really understand all these details, but I'm just telling the story as I read it. The, one of his friends says, you know, Jerry, you probably should just get insurance just in case. And so he thought, ah, maybe you're right. So he went and bought insurance. But then after a few months, he thought, no, I'm not trusting God. I should trust God. And so he decided to cancel the insurance. Suddenly their baby girl came early. She was born premature. As soon as she was born, the nurses took the baby right out of the room without explaining what was wrong. And, and uh, the little girl, they named her Jocelyn. And, and she was immediately transported to another hospital for specialized care. And Jerry and Julie followed as quickly as they could to the other hospital to see what was going on with their little girl. And eventually, as they were waiting, came the news. The doctor showed up, and he says, I have very bad news for you. Your daughter will die. There is no hope. The church began to hear what was going on. Babies on life support in an incubator. The church immediately went to fasting and prayer. They had a special prayer meeting that night. And then they did something very unusual because they were listening to what the Spirit was saying. And they had read the story in the book of Acts where, where uh, uh, Paul had laid his hands on some cloth, some pieces of material. And when he had done that, he, uh, they handed them out and they laid it on other people and they were healed. And the church thought, that's what we should do. We're, we're feeling like God wants us to do that. So they anointed a cloth, a piece of cloth with oil. They prayed and prayed and prayed over it. And then when they felt released by the Lord, they gave it to Jerry and Julie and say, here, lay this cloth on your daughter. Okay? Lay this cloth on your daughter. And we believe she's going to be healed. Jerry really didn't know what to think. He knew the scripture. He knew that that was in the Bible. But, but uh, it, just was a, it was just such a mess. And so they walked in. They carried the cloth with them. And they went into the, the ICU where the baby was. They, there's an incubator there. And there's only certain little holes they could put their hands through. And he had difficulty reaching his hand through all the wires and tubes that were hooked up to his baby girl. And he reached in and he took that cloth and he just draped it across his daughter. As soon as he did that... Suddenly, monitors just started going off. Things began to happen in the room. The nurses came running in. They, they took Jerry and Julie and forcibly ejected them out of the room. They thought they had messed with some of the machinery. Something was wrong. And, they, 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 and Jerry and Julie are outside, and they're wondering, what's just happened? What did we do? And, and the nurses, and, and they're going, and they're working over this baby. And, and what happened was, is that all the signs on the monitors and everything that were going on went completely normal at that moment. Completely normal. They ended up calling in a number of doctors to verify. And just like, are we, 
is this right? Is this okay? Yeah, the baby's perfectly fine. The perfect, she's healthy. Soon mom and dad, within a short amount of time, they were able to just take her home. Just take, and before they were taking her home, they went into the, and they said, well, before you leave, you need to go see the hospital administrator. So they walk into the administrator's office, and the administrator lays in front of them this bill that they just, Jerry, and he said he couldn't imagine. He thought in his mind, I will have to work the rest of my life to pay off that bill. It was more than he could even imagine at that time. And he looked at that, and, and so they were just like, well, we'll, we'll take responsibility. And, and about that time, another person walked into the room and began to speak quietly to the administrator, had a folder in her hand, and she gave it to the administrator. The administrator uh, looked at it and then uh, looked up at Jerry and Julie and said, said some years ago, a benefactor uh, left a large amount of money for the hospital for just occasions like this. And uh, apparently uh, he died, but, but whoever oversees this has apparently decided to pay off your hospital debt in full. So they walk out of the hospital, a brand new baby girl, <laughs> no money owed. We serve a God of miracles. We serve a God of miracles. This is real stuff. This isn't, this isn't 3,000 years ago. But God is still doing things. He's still reaching out to us. And we need to see, you know, what is it you need in your life? What, what is it you're running out of in your life? Right? Gas is a small thing. But if you're running out of something in your life, what mountain do you need to move today? We need to see Jesus as a Savior who cares. And then we care. We need to see Him as a God that comes to our weddings, to our parties, and celebrations, the birth of our children. And we need to be Mary, let Mary be an example to us of saying, whatever He tells you, just do that. Just do that. Are we prepared to hear that today, church? Why don't you stand up? Here's something I just want to tell you. When the Lord tells you to do something, don't be surprised if it doesn't make sense. Right? Because if it made sense, it wouldn't take faith. If, you, if, if Jesus said, well, go over there, and if you look in a closet, we actually have some wine after all, and so just grab that. That's not a miracle. But when he says, fill a water pot and dip out of it, and you'll have wine... That's a miracle. If you think, you think it through and you think, well, this is what I think the Lord's saying, and you think, but that doesn't make any sense, that's it. That's what you should be looking for. Because that's the thing that God wants to do. And He wants regular, everyday people to be part of the miracles He wants to do, just like us, people like us. So church, do what He tells you. Amen? Thank you for listening to Praise Center Sermon of the Week. Don't forget, for more information, visit PraySenterOnline.com.